welcome, 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 unicorn, unicorn. <laughs> Join Andrew Wall, Esther Garcia, and Michael Lee. One mission, one rule: make accounting fun. Welcome to Friday Night Live with Accountants. Are you ready? Well, this is a, um, a special episode that we've got this week. We we are flying in guests from halfway around the world, um, so we've got wonderful Clayton with us live from Australia. Um, but even better than that, we've got two amazing uh, guests joining us today. Doug Sleater, the legend, uh, is joining us today. And we're going to have some pretty interesting conversations. Um, there's so much to talk about, so many interesting things. You know, Hector, where do you think we should we should kick off? Well, I think we should stay a bit. Let's, let's, type, let's start partially topical, right? So we had some really big news happen to the entire fintech industry where we saw one fintech company acquire another fintech company for $7 billion, which is important to mention is 10% of the market cap of the acquirer and is seven to eight times the revenue that the acquiree or the, the, the company that was acquired was. So this is a, a, a humongous, let's call it overvalued uh, purchase for, of, of a company and uh, Intuit buying Credit Karma I would say the first question to you, Andrew, and everybody, what do you think Intuit is buying here? I mean, it's, is it worth $7 billion or, or where is the value and, and how can this impact us moving forward? So we'll start with you, Clayton, by the way, thank you for dialing in from um, Australia. Awesome being on the call, guys. Uh, I noticed the sun hasn't got up there yet. I mean, it's we're, we're just in the future here slightly and it's looking like a great day outside. So thanks for having us, guys. I am on water. Um, I do have a bottle of scotch here, but uh, that might be a little later. So, uh, seven billion bucks. I mean, that. Uh, you know, I just quickly worked it out. You know, the, given our current exchange rate, that's about twenty-five billion Australian. Um, no, nah, it's not actually. It's close to ten. But uh, big numbers, big numbers all round. I think the. Uh, it's interesting looking beyond this. Um, for us, growing up in the accounting tech world, we're, we've been talking about sort of incremental. Uh, sales, if you like, to small businesses, acquiring, accumulating small businesses, which sort of has been this drip that's been occurring and accumulated in a nice pond, I suppose, over 25, 30 odd years. And then suddenly you come along with bang, hit these massive numbers and, and the data that's perhaps sitting behind that as well. Um, so I think Intuit know things beyond what I know and the way I look at the world. Um, that data that's sitting there is obviously of huge value, um, massive reach to a customer base that obviously they believe that this company has a good connection with. Um, it's not, uh, perhaps it's, a, it's, a, it's an avenue to market for lots of things to come. So I, I'm still digesting it. Um, it's more in your world than ours. Uh, Credit Karma isn't a company or product that exists in our part of the world. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of deep dive on that, except that uh, there would be very good reasons why this acquisition occurred. Um, a lot of smart people sitting behind it um, so they believe that the numbers stack up and it's hard for us to judge otherwise. Thank you, Clayton. And Doug, you're closer to this, geographically closer to this whole fintech acquisition situations. What, what is your take on it? What, what are your thoughts about this massive acquisition? Well, uh, similar. I, uh, it's good to see you guys, by the way. Uh, hi, Clayton. And hey, good day, mate. Hi, Doug. Thank you for coming to the show and welcome. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. forgot that. Uh, yeah, so like, first of all, I was looking at other acquisitions Intuit has made over their entire history. 
I think the, the next largest was the T-Sheets acquisition for $340 million, was it? There it is. That was $340 million. This is $7 billion? This is uh, orders of magnitude larger than their, than their largest previous acquisition. So I'm thinking, wow, yeah, like Clayton just said, they must know something I don't know. It must have to do, and my conclusion is that it must have to do with data. Um, they obviously value data. And um, I have a hashtag I use, big bad data. I'm very concerned about the accuracy of any data that we're being used, that, that we're using, especially to the extent that it gets aggregated. Um, so that's, that's sort of a, a channel we can talk about is sort of the, the, the health of the data that they are purchasing here. Uh, and I'm sure that's only one piece of it. The other is the big marketing component. There's a, a huge customer list that Credit Karma must have access to. Kind of hard for me to believe into it doesn't already have almost all those same customers, but you know, maybe there's a different you know, demographic that they'll get here too. Um, I just get concerned though, because I'm not sure what business Intuit really is in if they're gonna be in the credit business. I thought they were in the sort of the software business that helped you and me do our job to help clients clean up their, you know, clean up their financial conditions and, and file their tax returns. So this to me feels very different. Uh, and, and I guess I'm waiting for the next shoe to drop. I wanna know what their real goal is with this. I read the press release, I didn't really understand any more than, than this, they're just buying this big company. Yeah, do you think- Financing um, tax refunds to know who they could finance and maybe that's a new, um, a new potential revenue stream or for like, you know, the H&R block model will give you your cash up front um, and they're turning that into TurboTax as a way to know, you know who's got the credit to it. Well, except for it doesn't even, it's not applicable because you know with the with the refunds, what the government's got, yeah. you know you're getting it back. You're getting it from the government, not, not them. So where is the value in this data? Uh, is there an element of take, them taking a competitor out of the market or um, on the free tax return side as well? I mean, is that something Credit Karma was offering to those customers? So yeah, Credit Karma was not offering tax returns, right. but Credit mm -hmm. Karma has an affiliate system where you, you log into Credit Karma, which is a, for the most part, free application, and there's a premium version of the credit monitoring and stuff. But especially the free people, because I used to use Credit Karma a while ago, um, you, you check your credit, but then under it is your, the mortgage rates, refinance your credit cards. You've been pre-qualified. I don't know if you, you get this in Australia, but in the US, we always get pre-qualified for credit cards for banks that we have never spoken sure. to ever, right? Mm. We so, didn't know they knew who we were. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so we're pre-qualified for 100,000 business loan or whatever. Mm. So you're, you're looking at all these things and when people click on it, I assume, because otherwise the business model would be kind of weird, weird, that once people click on it, Credit Karma got paid for the click mm. and probably a bounty of some sort if an application came in. So that was Credit Karma's business, which is sort of layer on top the standard uh, credit monitoring, um, you know, credit check, uh, you know, tools to help you improve your credit type of stuff. But Sasan and the CEO of, of uh, Credit Karma, which I don't remember his name, you know, they, they did this, they, they have this whole website uh, uh, focused on the, the messaging, you know, what, what is this all about and everything. And, mm -hmm. uh, and if you actually go into to that website, they talk a lot about helping Americans reduce their debt 
So, so, so there's a, there's a marketing mission behind this, you know, which is, Hey, now that we have more of your data, Americans, we are going to sell you the products that are going to help you, you know, become more financial savvy, uh, reduce your debt, uh, save money or whatever. And, and all these things are at the end, a financial product of some sort. It's probably not QuickBooks, uh, but it might yes. be a TurboTax product. That's, that's for sure. I say yet, because maybe this is the foray to QuickBooks becoming a bank. Well, sure. I mean, they, they, they have a product that's been uh, going on for a while, which is called QuickBooks Capital. And, um, and before they branded it as QuickBooks Capital, they basically were referring loans to one of these, uh, I think it was on deck or something like that. So these companies that, that, that kind of crowdsource all the banks and the financial companies to help small businesses get $10,000, $20,000 in loans. But now they're fully branded as QuickBooks Capital. So QuickBooks is officially a bank that lends money. Um, you know, I have, my, I have my own theories in terms of why that's a good idea or, or a bad idea. But th- there are some components of this technology company that used to be an accounting and tax business becoming or transforming into, uh, into a banking product. And like Clayton said, I'm not sure Credit Karma posed a threat into their tax pro- products, but I am sure that Bank of America, Chase, Wells Fargo can create their own GL account overnight and immediately post a threat into uh, QuickBooks or any GL accounting software. So this might be a ca- sort of preemptive counterattack to the banks getting into the into the fintech business, I don't know. I'm just speculating. Mm. And I suppose traditionally, uh, um, having a broad base of small businesses, every small business is owned by an indiv- someone. You know, there's a family or there's a there's a group of individuals that that sit behind that. So it'll be really interesting to see the crossover um, between the traditional database of small business land through to um, you know personal finances and and credit. Um, I would, I mean, I. It'll be interesting to even see whether that's even challenged um, in some way at a statutory or government level through, um, you know, the, the trust um, laws as to whether that this is appropriate or not. Um, I'm not sure if that's even been touted. Well, I mean, I guess this the whole concept here of the data brings up a, a topic that I know you're pretty passionate about, Doug, which is that this how value like it's valued data. But how valuable is this data? Because we're so full of useless or, or seemingly useless data that needs to be cleaned. And, and that's what so many of us as accountants are doing and spending our time doing is cleaning up this, um, the data that's, quite, that's supposedly so valuable. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about big bad data. Well, uh, you're talking to me, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you well, talking to me? That's my big concern is that um, if, if let's say you're going to do a lending platform and you're going to use this data that you have a stream, a direct access to, and you look at my QuickBooks file, because you can, and I haven't brought it up to date yet because I haven't uh, recorded the receivables or, or the payable. Hey, I haven't recorded it. It's just not ready. It's not you know, that's what the four of us have done for our, all of our lives is help the small business get that to a, to a point that's clean and, and ready for viewing. Now, if somebody's viewing us in process, I think they're viewing, it's random what they're going to conclude about anybody's books. So I really am concerned from, if we're talking about the accounting data that they're going to look at. Now, 
I uh, forget who mentioned, maybe they're going to look at the turbo tax, the tax returns. Okay, but it's still, that doesn't really, well, it's almost never going to show, uh, certainly in the turbo, it's not going to show the, the, the balance sheets. It's not really going to show aged receivables. It's not going to show that data that they would, might, they would need uh, in order to really assess the capital or the, the credit worthiness. So I guess I just don't see that that data is what they really ought to be using to make capital decisions. So in general, let's get away from this particular, I mean, you guys decide, but instead of me focusing on this particular deal, I think it's more important for the audience to think about what are we doing as professionals as companies begin to change their business models, change the way they, their offerings to our clients and maybe to us. What are we doing? This is under my heading of agility trumps ability. You can't control the world. You can only control your own reaction to the world and your own reactions need to continually be agile. You, I have to look at what's going on, try to understand it like we're all kind of confused about this, but we'll figure this out in the next few weeks. I'm sure we'll understand what the play is here. And we got to say, we're not going to prevent it. We're not going to change it. We're, we are subject to it, but we can change our direction. Um, and uh, th this is where, in this particular case, we may choose, okay, now we really need to go into a, uh, an advisory role where we're telling clients, hey, you know, you're going to get offers for credit. Perhaps they're uh, deciding something about you. Maybe you need to talk with us as soon as these come in to understand what your options are. Uh, it's still, I, I double down on and I know Hector, you're doing this a lot. You're really, really in there deep with the client's data and making sure that they have presentable financial condition at all times. That They need us for this. Even I'm an investor in a company called Botkeeper. That's the bots taking over, doing the business, doing the bookkeeping, right? Well, yes, for most of it, but it's never gonna replace the human judgment on what we're presenting here. Have we? so much you and I can spot instantly almost uh, by looking at a, at a financial uh, report uh, that's wrong that needs to be fixed. And I, I don't see us getting away from that for quite a long time. So I want to double down. Sorry, I'll get out of the way here. I want to double down on my services to the clients who need my help, who need to bounce ideas off me, who need me to help them understand what they're potential options are in their business to make it more successful. And if, if, if you, the QuickBooks advisor, are focused there, or the Zero advisor, or, or Intact, I mean, there's a lot of different products in the market, so we keep talking about Intuit, and it isn't about that, it's about us, and the software we're using, and the clients who need to use that software with us to create better results for their company. Clayton, how do you think trust uh, affects all this? Oh, I just think it's the linchpin, you know, we're just at this sort of this inflection point a little bit on, on this. I know when for us, you know, 27 years ago, you know, we, we, we started our software advisory division in the accounting firm. And the fundamental people told us about, oh, which product you've got to recommend because it's a good product. It's, it's, it's a market leader. It's this, it's that. I really went back to, okay, I want to look at who I can trust. Who do I like, believe and trust? Um, who's going to back us up? so that we can back up the trust and keep the trust connection with our client. 
So it was fundamental. I had to look at that angle first before we even decided what software was potentially in, in the mix. So I've, I look at accounting professionals um, and you know, trust is vital to us. It's, 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 it's essentially reciprocal and mutual trust. There's sort of, I like this book. I've got it right in front of me. Just happened to have it. The 10 Laws of Trust uh, by John Peterson. There's a few books around on all this trust piece. But he sort of talks about the three types of trust. One is reciprocal or mutual trust. When people advance each other's interests out of love, duty or enlightenment or enlightened self-interest. And so we're in this together for the purpose of helping and growing and, and extending others. Um, obviously, there's mutual benefit that pulls out the other end, but the foundation is this mutual trust. In fact, I'm going to help and trust and put more trust out there um, continually. It, I'm just going to continue to build on it. The other piece of trust is representative trust, and that's more like your, your lawyers, perhaps accountants in there, but I, feel, I still think we are in the mutual trust um, piece. And then there's pseudo-trust that really only exists whilst that a party is getting what they want. And the view from where I come from is that we have a client forever. Our view is this is a forever relationship and forever actually does mean forever. And, and unless the client decides otherwise, um, it's their prerogative or there's an ethical behavior piece that we decide, no, we, we're not going to continue um, with this relationship. So what does this all mean with software companies and software vendors? You know, um, I think some vendors have built their business model with partnering with accountants on pseudo trust. And this will unravel if there's a moment or, or if it's a revelation or realization that this trust relationship is in fact pseudo and it's there whilst you are benefiting and you've crafted it for us. I've just happened to fall into it. And, and when it comes to the data piece, you know, if, like for example, I think as professionals, moving, building on our trusted advisor relationship status with clients, what questions should we be asking that clients perhaps are too busy to ask, don't know they should be asking, they've just got blind trust in a piece of software, but we're, we're partnering with these companies. So are we asking questions like, whose data is it? What, um, what do you, do you look at my client's balance sheet? Now I'm not saying that's good or bad necessarily, I just wanna know, does it happen? And for some vendors out there, that is happening to sell a loan to the client. They are looking at our client's balance sheet and determining whether they'll offer a loan to, to that customer or their customer, our client, without offering, a, a, what was that? Offer or deny the loan based on that. Possibly. possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that um, removes sort of that independence piece too and, and impartiality that uh, our data is being utilized for that purpose. Um, in many cases with us, without us knowing, can I opt in? Should there just be a blanket opt in for any of this data mining? And, and I know people talk about saying, oh, well, everyone does it on the internet. internet. No, everyone does not do it on the internet. So we can't put that to one side and say, oh, because everyone does it, you know, like the standard we um, walk past, you know, or, or, or condone is the standard we accept. And if, it's, and if it's not right, or if we believe from an ethical standpoint, that's not right, we should say something. Now, and then clients have got a choice as to, well, will we continue to partner with a vendor that actually does this or goes around or crafts gotchas to make it possible for them to do that. So this, we're either building or breaking trust. I think we've always got to remember that. We're doing, um, from the software vendor's point of view, with us as professionals, um, you know, they see us as a channel to market perhaps that they've created. I don't think there's anything wrong with being a channel to market unless you know that you are. 
Um, and so there's misaligned expectations um, here. Um, a lot of accounting professionals wake up one day when they feel as though I'm, I'm not, there's a, there's, a, there's a trust breaking point or a stress point, and then suddenly they realise, oh, this was built on pseudo trust, not neutral trust, right from the beginning. So there, there are probably bigger things that we can answer right now, but there's, there's little pieces that make this up and that break it or build it. I don't know if I asked, answered a question or posed questions. <laughs> I think you, you did a great job. You, you draw some questions in my mind anyways. Um, this idea of this pseudo trust, it's so true that that's, you know, we, we trust these relationships with our software vendors um, until it no longer serves our needs, um, which I guess also demonstrates the real importance. If, if we know and understand that this is a pseudo trust relationship, um, having diverse backgrounds and working with multiple platforms so that we have that agility that Doug talked about to be able to be flexible when our trust has been violated um, to be able to do it. Because one of the things that, that if you're not, if you don't have that independence, if you're hundred percent devoted to one platform, um, even when that trust is violated, you've almost blocked yourself into a corner where, uh, yeah, there's, there's little that you can do about that. Um, and I guess it, you know, you talk about the trust or the behavior that you'll walk past is, is the behavior that, that will become the standard. And, and where is the breaking point um, for our industry? What are the standards that we are setting and whose responsibility is it to set those standards? Is it, is it the CPAs? Uh, is it the bookkeeper associations? We've had a whole, whole conversation about the different associations and different groups who sets the level of professionalism and trust um, that we will abide by. So, I mean, you, you're like, unfortunately, you answered a question, but created hundreds more questions in my mind, and, and I'm sure in anyone who's listening. Welcome um, to my world. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> help, I mean, help. Help, help. I mean, so what do you do when, um, when trust has been violated? Um, how do you, how how do we measure trust in this digital age with software? Is it really all just about, um, you know, online reviews? Like how does that, even whether it's pseudo trust or whatever type of trust is, how does that trust get created with software providers? That's a great question. Cause if I might just extending on from there, because I, it, it sort of resonates with me around that, um, you know, should, I think the profession, think accounting professionals, you know, bookkeepers, accountants, ABCs, accountants, bookkeepers, consultants, um, that are serving SMBs. And so we, um, I think we've been more a taker than a maker of this path. Um, I don't, I think we've sort of just blindly accepted, oh, look, they've got a great product. I really want that product in the client's business. Um, whatever they say, um, the they, the, the, the anonymous group of they. So we, we just haven't been um, perhaps proactive enough, strong enough, um, more we've been divided. Um, I, you know, should, is there a need for, a, for an ethical charter um, of some sort, you know, that, that, that's, that's from the bottom up, you know, from the professional has decided, look, this is the way we would expect you to work with us. We have vendors that tell us the way they would, you would want us to work with them. Uh, why can't we come together? Now, this is not us running in two sort of parallel, two tram lines that'll never meet. I think I am incredibly passionate about helping vendors realize potential. Um, and, and ultimately, it's serving the small business client you know, helping that business owner operator buy back some time in their life so they can spend more time with the kids. You know, ultimately this is what it's about. And are we actually working together symbiotically to make this happen? So maybe that, that, that sort of ethical charter piece needs to be better down. Some of our expectations as a profession need to be articulated. Um, 
en masse. I think in some respects, we've, we've been waiting for someone else to do it, uh, whether it is the professional body, um, you know, so maybe we just need to do it, you know, draft it out and say, hey, look, this is, I think, where we should start with the view to work together. Now, some people, some vendors will self-select and say, you know what, we just can't abide by that. We can't, we can't fit into your model of the world. That's okay. You know, you do not have to have a channel to market being an accounting professional. It's not a problem. But, and, and more on your point around that whole independence piece, you know, as, as profess, we all, we chose four vendors from day one because we wanted to build two things. I, I wanted to de-risk the business from the very beginning. If I was all in with one single vendor, eventually this was going to be a problem. And it turned out one of those four vendors actually took our entire client base that we set up with them and gave it to another consultant. And so that will happen. You know, what if, what if every single client of yours that you actually partnered with a software vendor, suddenly that vendor gave your entire client list to a competitor? Think about that, ponder that for a minute. It's not that it won't happen, it does happen and it can happen. And what's written into the partnership agreement to stop that from happening? So, yeah, I, guys, yeah, <laughs> yeah, my yeah, session. No, absolutely. You're no, the brain's okay. trust. <laughs> so, with, with, specifically with what you're saying, and I know this is something that doesn't affect you yet because you're not seeing this uh, in Australia yet, but in the US and now coming to Canada, uh, into it. I know we don't like to bash on specific vendors, but we have to speak about what's going on in our world. Um, introduce a service that essentially the, 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 the software company offers accounting services and it's not meant to uh quote unquote it's not meant to uh to compete with current accountants they're apparently only going to target people that don't have an accountant but it's inevitable right that when a supplier enters the market it's another choice right for for the customer so they don't have to proactively take the customer and give it you know or, or, or steal it from you or give it to another vendor, they're, they're now part of the choices that the customers have. Now, there's nothing unethical with entering the market and competing, absolutely nothing uh, unethical about that. But it is, if, you have to, if you're a small accountant with 10, 20 clients or whatever, you don't have the marketing budget <laughs> that, these, that these companies have. You don't have the data already. Uh, and, and, and you know what? You also so ethical because you're an individual professional that you're not going to be mining their data and proactively market additional services to them unless we know that our customer is asking for an additional specific service. Where these software companies, without including Intuit or any otherwise, these software companies, they don't have a, a, a person that has an ethical, moral compass to say, should I do this or should I not do this? No, no. The, our computer system said that we should market to these group of people. So, and there's not even any button to press. AI takes care of that automatically, you know? So it gets to a point that it gets so dehumanized where these big companies can basically do whatever they want um, because it's all systemized, right? There's not, there's not an individual person that, that, that ordered, right? That order or whatever. And it ends up getting to the point where the professionals and the software companies will be less part. I think, I think it will get to the point that we will be less of partners, especially if what Clayton is saying is true, that there will be a consortium of professionals that will create an ethical charter and change this from the bottom up, which essentially changes the agenda of the software companies and the vendors. How are they going to say, oh, we love this. We, we love you guys slowing us down. We love you guys stopping it. Now, I don't want to 
slow down or stop innovation. I think no. that's sort of the, the, the real big challenge that we have, which is us as accountants, we never stopped it because it was so damn convenient to move things to the cloud. It was so damn convenient to have one place where all the clients are. It's so damn convenient to connect the banks and get the data on real time as it happens. I mean, the, the, the reality of accountants and all human beings is we give up privacy for convenience. It is, it is part of this strange uh, unspoken agreement we have with the technology companies that says, if you make my life easier and I don't have to enter my password twice, I, I, think, I think I'm okay with giving up part of my privacy. And, and I guess, and, and when it's done in increments, like we've done, we've seen it in the past 20 years, you don't feel it. But if you actually go back and take a look at how we used to secure our data or how we used to talk about politics or whatever, like the things that we, that, that we held close to our chest and all of a sudden with, with, with technology and social media, we no longer care about these things being out in the open. I mean, this is going to affect this is truly going to affect the, the world of small business owners, their advisors, and software companies. And this consternation will become more apparent and more apparent as time goes. I don't know what it looks like. I don't want to predict it. But there will be a point in time where we will either cave in and say, you know what? Big software companies will let you do whatever you want. Just follow through and hope that we can make a living by attaching to your brand and your system somehow. Or we can we could revolt and we could take a step back and we could say, hey, we won't use you or we won't recommend you. But the only way we can do that is that we have to build more trust than the software companies and more trust than the technology companies are now little by little building with, with our customers. So I just wanted to add on to that because you were saying that I was mm -hmm. thinking, you know, how is this charter of ethical thing going to play with the software companies? And, and Doug, I know you, you do a lot of consulting with these software companies. Have you done consulting in this particular area on, on, on whether or not the software company should value their data more than the trust with their partners? Has this topic come up at all? No, that uh, particular not. But, but something I think parallel to it is that I've done a lot of consulting with uh, tech companies on, hey, I need to build a channel to increase my sales. Hey, the accountants are the perfect channel because they're so good and they have this great referral partnership with their clients so they can, all I got to do is impress the accountants and I'll be rich because <laughs> they'll start selling for me. And so I always tell the, the tech vendors, I say, the accounting profession is both a channel and not a channel. <laughs> um, they have, they have an incredible, ability to recommend your product to their clients. As Clayton just mentioned, a client for an accountant is a, a lifetime commitment relationship unless one or the other cuts it off. Uh, that isn't necessarily true with tech companies to the end user customer. They might use your product today and then use another product as they grow or change their business models. So it's much more that we are the one with the lifetime relationship. So I say to the vendors, I say, look, if you want to engage the accounting profession, fine. You, you've got to really make them understand your, your, your software and your solution and who it's best for and make them as expert as they can become on your software so that when the appropriate situation occurs, we can make the recommendation. Now, so, so you can't ignore the accounting profession, but as soon as you then start to believe that 
they're our lackeys and they'll sell for us and we've got them under our thumb and we can move their list to another one of their competitors at will. You have broken the, the bond, the bonds. And uh, because as soon as that starts happening, then all of us talk and we will veto your product um, because we think you're a bad behavior uh, vendor or because we've never heard of your vendor. So this is why you can't pay no attention to the profession. You have to engage, uh, but you can't over expect the profession to be your magic answer to great sales and start putting uh, uh, you know, quotas on, on your sales force in, this, in the accounting channel. Um, that's what they don't ever seem to really understand because usually the people who are tasked at the vendors with working with the profession, they're the sales division, if you will, and certainly at the bigger vendors. Uh, the smaller vendors, you're often working with the CEO, and so you can develop that trust. And as long as that company doesn't get to become a behemoth huge thing where they departmentalize and somebody comes along and starts behaving badly, then we got a good long-term relationship. So that was kind of a long answer to, to your question, um, Hector, and it's an important thing to, to, to consider. It's not, I don't talk to the vendors so much about their data, which is where you were going, and how much data they're capturing, because I frankly don't think they should at all. As that comes up in the future, you bet I'm gonna be talking about it. Vendors seem to think that accountants or the accounting channel, it's homogenous. I'm not sure if that's the correct oh, right. We're all the right? same. We do the same yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, we're all the same. We all want the same thing. What do accountants want? And then what ends up happening is, and, and I have this, I have this particular issue with developers and the product managers, which is our accountants are giving us X, X and Y feedback. And I'm like, which, which accountants one? are these? Because this doesn't seem to be something that I even see. And, and sometimes I get so frustrated that they'll take one person's feedback and another person's feedback and they make it all average. And it's like, dude, no, you know, some people have different perspectives, you know, like right. I'm not going to say that any accountant has better or worse feedback than I have. I think that you receive some sort of trivial feedback from one person or two people that happen to be aligned and somehow that becomes a new thing. And then you realize that they, they end up targeting something that's not even that valuable in the first place. So I think part of the problem is, is putting all, all, all of us in one category. And I'm not just talking about firm size or type of oh. client personality plays oh, into this too you know like early into this they made the assumption that accountants themselves were okay with going online with going to the cloud with connecting bank accounts i mean a lot of accountants themselves told their clients don't move to the cloud don't so, connect your bank you know we, we can do, do a yet. whole show on this one topic <laughs> of how are different how are accountants all not all the same I just make sure they don't lump us all in. The accountant isn't one big blob. It's so different. Well, I think too, on that, um, going back to that sort of services piece, you know, what's the origin of the channel? You know, and, and, and so uh, some vendors, and not just in the accounting tech space, but just tech generally, um, the, the, the ch creation of the channel was in response to lots of sales that had happened, maybe at a direct level or through retailers, and there was a services need. So that wasn't going to be fulfilled within the, the, the product-based company. And it's fascinating watching this sort of switch round now. Um, where, you know, and then the other flip side of that was some vendors just went 
channel first. You know, um, I'm going to partner deeply with accountants. We watched MYB do that in Australia um, 25 years ago. QuickBooks came here um, with more of the direct model, um, then eventually created uh, a partner program, um, I think just before the ProAdvisor program got created in the US. But it was in response to, oh, we can't handle this. We're a smaller business. Uh, we need people to handle services. Whereas MYB was, no, we're going to partner completely with the accountants. Um, and and that's just going to be a long play. Um, eventually, they broke trust 20 years later. And zero stood right in, was opportunity preparedness. They have played the same playbook. I hope they learn from the trust-breaking piece. Uh, but it'll, it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. And even on Intuit's side now, looking to um, effectively switch and transition to a services-based company, which for, I suppose for me was like, aha, I always wondered how you could sell $1, $5 files and expect to be profitable. I've got my small business hat on here of product, um, X times a price you know, equals gross turnover. It's if I can take that product that I've sold to a customer for five bucks and suddenly overlap or overlay $200, $500 a month services, bingo. You know, that's, I'm now transitioning to this high growth, top end growth um, that the stock market likes, obviously. Um, so, and, and it's been fascinating watching them do that or try to do that in the US and it hasn't happened here in Australia and I think there'll be a lot of pushback here um, if they really do try to, to, to push ahead with this um, for, and in lots of different areas. But I think the thing is, you know, my, my point on this is I noticed um, a year or two ago, Intuit sort of stopped talking about connecting um, the pro-advisor with the customer. And, you know, software companies were doing this for many years. They had the pro-advisor sort of or the, or the, the marketplace for, for um, consultants where, or accountants connect with your advisor. And they, they've now sort of switched to say, well, 40% are not connected. Therefore, we need to take that on and we need to be the one. We need to get the people employed so we can take that 40% that don't use a bookkeeper. Instead of saying, hey, why don't we continue to get to 100%? And so it's been fascinating um, watching that sort of them just call it, uh, you know, high risk strategy perhaps, but I think, think they've worked out that that's going to serve them better in the long run. Just, just to wrap off on the trust piece, I suppose, from where I was coming from, I could, I struggled for probably two decades. Um, I hope this can shortcut it for some others out there to think why would, did this always feel like a dance? You know, when I was sort of dancing with vendors, um, we, we were never, we were sort of, dating. We were never really fully getting married. Um, not that I wanted multiple wives, but it was just, I just always felt as though there was something I didn't want to get too far, too close. I wanted to work together for the mutual benefit of our clients for sure. Totally. I actually wanted to give you feedback vendor on how I think you can become better, how I think you can connect better with the clients. And, and you know, we've done that over 20 odd years, but I always felt as though we were almost running two different races. And I think the thing that sort of crystallized in my mind was when I read a book called um, uh, The Finite and Infinite Games by um, James Cass. Um, he wrote it 20, 30 years ago. And then Simon Sinek has come out to sort of extend on that for business. Just happened to have a book. But The Infinite Game, guys, professionals, you've, you've, we've got to read this. We've got to actually deeply understand that there are two games being played in, in the world. Um, there's the, the finite game and the purpose of playing that game is to win, you know, to actually beat someone to be the victor, to, to, get, to be number one, to have the market cap of the biggest, you know, all those sorts of 
um, measuring points. Uh, the fo focus on the benefit and the return to the shareholder. You know, incentivizing um, executives within corporations. All of that is paramount in the finite game. The infinite game, which I believe as um, innately is that accounting professionals are participating in, en masse, is where we play the game in order to, to continue playing the game. And, you know, it's actually just about, um, you know, continual improvement. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really a part, it's life for us. Um, and so he, Simon Sinek in this book, it just, it just became obviously totally clear to me that there are two different games. And what he does is gives us a framework and a lens to look through. When we're looking at our existing partnerships with our vendors, with our clients, with our, with our team members, um, 